Good morning. You guys looking good? A little, little more uh, mellow than first service, though. They were, they were real excited. You seem real chill. I'll see if I can. That's good. I like that, Jenny. I'm, we'll see if we can get more of that. All right, so this morning, um, we're going to continue our series, Life of Paul, and I have a question I want to start with first. How many of you have ever seen a documentary of, that, like, the documentary of a band on tour, okay? Like a musical act going from city to city to city and they filmed it and they showed it on TV. Raise your hand if you've seen a documentary of a film of a band on tour. Okay, so not about half of you. Okay, so for the half of you that have not seen one of these, I'm going to tell you what they're like um, because there's pretty much four rules that I think every documentary of a musical act as they tour, they, there's, there's four rules that the documentarians always follow. And those of you who have seen this, I think you're going to agree with me when you see it, okay? This is what happens every single time you watch one. First of all, they do not show stuff over and over again, even if it happened over and over and over again, okay? In other words, when a band tours, a lot of the same things happen because they do a show and then they go to a new city and they do the same show. And so if you have a band that does a show in Seattle and then like a night or two later they do a show in Portland and then a little bit later on they do a show in San Diego and then they do another concert in Phoenix and then they do a concert in Dallas. When they make the documentary, they're not going to just show you, hey, this is the set that they did in Seattle. Oh, here's a very, very similar concert of what they did in Portland. And then, oh, here it is in San Diego. Notice it's almost the exact same thing with the same staging, right? If they do the same thing six times in a row, the documentary doesn't show it to you six times in a row. Is that correct? Yeah, because would, we wouldn't want to watch that. So they don't show stuff over and over again, even though it happened over and over again. However, this next rule they always follow, they do show the important footage at least once as a representative of the other times. And what I mean by the important footage is, like if it's a band that has a hit song, okay, they're not going to show you playing the hit, they're not going to show them playing the hit song over and over and over again in every city, but they're not going to do the other extreme either. It's not like they're going to not show you them playing their hit song. They are going to show it one time, and then you're going to have to assume that that's the way they played it on all the other cities. Does that make sense? So if they did do the tour that I described earlier, and let's just imagine maybe the, the concert in Phoenix was the one that was like, you know, oh, that was the best one, maybe the crowd was the most into it, then they'll probably show the footage of them performing their hit song when they're in Phoenix and not the other, the other times. And what you're going to do as the audience that's watching the documentary, you're going to just assume they probably sang that song in all the other cities. They probably sang it in a very similar way in all the other cities, right? Is that right? Yep, they do it every time. Okay, here's number three. Rule number three, they minimize the unremarkable parts. If there was a time where the bass player is in a tour bus staring out the window for seven hours as trees go by and they're trying, waiting to the next city, the documentary doesn't show the bass player staring out a window watching trees go by for seven hours, do they? No, just, they show the guy get on the tour bus and then magically he just gets off the tour bus one second later and they just minimize all the boring parts, right? However, they always obey rule four as well, which is they show the remarkable parts. That is, if there is something that happened in one city but didn't happen in the other ones, they will show that. If the, if the drummer got so drunk that in the middle of a song he just sort of like passed out and fell over in one of their concerts, they're going to show that, right? I mean, depending on the documentary. If it's a favorable one, maybe they'll, they'll edit that out. But if it's like, you know, one of those, like, you know, where are they nows, right? They're, they're going to go back. They're going to show you the bad stuff. And, and even if the dr drummer only passed out, like, only in Dallas, they're, they're still going to show that. Even though it wasn't part of the act, they're going to show it to you because it was remarkable. Or if there was, like, a fight that broke out among the people, the, the, the attenders at the concert in Seattle, but not in any of the other cities, they're going to show that. Now, why do, I, why do I start with this? The reason I start with this is because it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me that Luke, 
the writer of the book of the Bible that we know of as Acts, used this formula 2,000 years before there ever was such a thing as a banned documentary. Okay? He did this very same thing, and I think it's helpful for you to realize that as you read through the book of Acts, which is where we're teaching from lately, um, as you read through it so you can see how it's structured and why he makes the decisions he makes to include what he includes and doesn't include what he doesn't include. There might be parts that we go, why is the Bible like that? But for the most part, we don't, when we watch documentaries, we don't go, why is it like that? We just kind of understand the rules. And so they apply here. I think Luke follows all of these same rules. So let me show you what I mean by that. Um, As we've been continuing this series, Life of Paul, we are now in part nine, and Paul and Barnabas are kind of on tour, right? They're going from city to city, doing the same thing over and over again. They're going from synagogue to synagogue, telling people about Jesus. And um, as he writes out this story, these are the rules that he follows. First of all, he does not show the same stuff over and over and over again, even if it happened over and over and over again. When, if you read through the book of Acts, Luke does not say, Paul and Barnabas traveled to such and such city. And he walked into the synagogue and he said this, And then he got out of that synagogue and he walked to the next city and he went into the next synagogue and he said this, which is a collection of words that's really, really similar to the same thing he said in the city before. And he said those words again. And then when he left that city, he went to the next one and he said this, a collection of words really similar to what he said in the last one. They don't do that over and over again. They just say, and you might remember this from last week, they just say, he went through the whole region and preached Jesus in the synagogues, right? They don't say it over and over again, even if it happened over and over and over again. Okay, but then number two, they do, Luke does talk about the important stuff at least once as a representative of the other times. And this one's a big deal. This is actually, rule number two is the reason I'm telling you this today. Because the passage that we're going to learn today, okay, Acts chapter 13, verses 13 through 52, the story that I'm going to preach from, I think, I think the reason that it is the way it is, is because of rule number two, Okay. That just like I said, if they, the, the, the hit song that's in Phoenix, they're going to show them playing that song as a, as a representative of the, what they played in all the other places. In a similar way, what we have today in our passage is Paul and Barnabas go to a town called Antioch and Pisidia. And this passage is different than almost every other passage in the book of Acts. And what's different about it is in this passage, what Paul said gets recorded. And so it might seem weird to you that you're reading through the book of Acts and and you see over and over and over again, Paul preached in the synagogue, but it doesn't say what he preached. It just says that he preached. And you see that over and over again until you get to this story. And in this story, for some reason, Luke describes what he preached. And as you're reading, you might go, wow, why of all the places is this one the one where he says what he said in the synagogue when there's so many other similar stories where it doesn't say what he said at all? And this is my guess. Again, I could be wrong. I think Luke includes, because it's important for us to know what Paul said, and so he tells us this time as a representative of the other times. This occasion, he says, this is what Paul said, and I think as we read it, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go, oh, this is probably the same kind of thing he said whenever he was in this situation, even though Luke doesn't rewrite it out every time. The other thing that Luke does is he follows rules number three and four. Um, he minimizes the unremarkable parts. I mean, there are probably plenty of times in the book of Acts where what happened was they left a city and they walked, and they walked all day long. And then when it got toward the end of the day, they set up a tent, and they built a fire, and they cooked their dinner, and they slept in the tent, and then they woke up the next morning, and they got out of the tent, and they snuffed the fire out, and they packed up the tent, and they walked for another day, and then pitched a tent, and set a fire, and they did that. And Luke doesn't describe that. Luke just says... And they went from this city to this city 
and you're just supposed to assume all of those boring things that were needed in order to travel and in order to survive happened. But he does show the remarkable parts. There are times when something unusual happens, and you'll have more words devoted to that. And so last week is a great example of this. Last week, um, Paul and Barnabas spent probably weeks going through the island of Cyprus, and there's just a, like a few words that are devoted to that. But then they come across this false prophet, and Paul rebukes him, and the guy goes blind on the spot, and Luke spends a whole bunch of words describing that. Why? Well, because that didn't happen every time he went to a city. He wasn't going around blinding people right and left. That was like a special thing that happened one time. And so Luke includes that because that's a remarkable part of the story. I tell you all that because I think it's helpful for you to know as you read through the book of Acts, it is a fantastic book. It is so well-structured, and it is structured in the way that I think a lot of our modern documentaries are structured. And so as you read it, you can know like, hey, why is it that sometimes they, they leave out stuff? Like they just tell, they tell, say something real quick. They spend like just a few words describing what must have taken months, right? Why is that? And then why, why do they spend a whole lot of words sometimes talking about something that had to have happened like all in the same day. And why do sometimes it talks about what they preached and sometimes it just kind of assumes you know what they preached, right? And I think what's helpful is once you realize this, you go, well, that's not, there's nothing weird about that. Every time we've watched a documentary, we've said, yeah, yeah, that's how people tell stories. And that's how Luke tells his story. So with all of that in mind, we're going to go to Acts chapter 13 today. And our text is going to be verses 13 through 52. That is a longer section than what we have been doing as we've been going through Acts. And the reason why is this section, the reason this section is longer than the other ones is because of number two. At least that's what I believe. That is, this one not only includes the story of what happened when Paul went to this particular city, but this one includes what he said. Like his hit song is included, right? The words that he said get included in this story. So we're going to read the whole thing. Acts chapter 13, if you have your Bible with you, go there, and I'm going to start reading from verse 13. I'll read to verse 52, and basically I think the best thing to do is I'm just going to read all the way through it, and then I'll go back and sort of retell the story and talk about how it applies to our life. So follow along with me. This is the Word of God, Acts 13, starting in verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, however, left them and went back to Jerusalem. They continued their journey from Perga and reached Antioch in Pisidia. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have any message of encouragement for the people, you can speak. So then Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And then after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to them as an inheritance. This all took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, then they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me who will carry out all my will. From this man's descendants, according to the promise, God brought the Savior, Jesus, to Israel. 
Before he came to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Then as John was completing his life's work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not the one. But look, someone is coming after me, and I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, sons of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they did not recognize him or the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled their words by condemning him. Though they found no grounds for the death penalty, they asked Pilate to have him killed. When they had fulfilled all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Since he raised him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. For David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So, beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. <clears throat> Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will never believe, even if someone were to explain it to you. And then that's where the sermon ends, but the passage keeps going, so I'm going to keep reading. As they were leaving, the people begged that these matters be presented to them the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. The following Sabbath, almost whew, the whole town assembled to hear the message of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to oppose what Paul was saying by insulting him. Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, It was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the prominent women who worshipped God and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. 
But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So that's our passage for this morning. And so I'm going to go back and kind of tell you the story of it, and let's go ahead and start with a map, because if you remember the very first, if we're going to go in order, kind of following these verses, the very first couple of verses um, have some geography in them. So let's go ahead and pay attention to what it says in verses 13 and 14. So this is the map from last week. You remember it? Paul and Barnabas started in Antioch. They went to the port city of Seleucia, and they went to the eastern port on the side of Cyprus, the, on the eastern side of Cyprus. Um, and then they worked their way through the island, and then they ended at Paphos. Do you remember that? That's where the encounter with the false prophet, and whoa, and the guy went blind. That happened right there, and that's where we left them. Like as we're, as we're preaching through the book of Acts, and as we get through the story, that's where they were. They were in Paphos when we finished the sermon last week. Okay? I mean, they weren't, right? But, but like, that's where they were. In the story, they are, right? That's where they were. Um, this all happened a long, long time ago. So they're there, and what do they do next? What's the next part of the story after they're in Paphos? Well, this story picks up right where it left off. It says um, they set sail from Paphos, and they went to Perga. Okay? So they got on a boat, and they went to Perga. That's the next thing they did. And then once they got to Perga, something interesting happens. This guy who was with them, it says John bailed on them. Okay? John left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, who's John? Do you remember him from last week? What's his other name? Mark, yeah, John Mark, sometimes John, who is called Mark, sometimes called Mark, sometimes called John. He's their assistant missionary on this journey. So Paul and Barnabas are there with their assistant, and they have gone from here to here to here to here. And then once they get here, he quits. And I'm not going to make a big deal of this part of the story, because Luke does not make a big deal of this part of the story yet. Okay? In, this, in this passage, it says, just John left and went to Jerusalem. It doesn't sound like it was a big deal. But I just want to let you know, it is a big deal. Okay, and, and the way I know it's a big deal is because I've read ahead, okay, and in a, in a couple of chapters, you're going to find out that this was a very big deal, that he went with them and then halfway through quit, and later on in the story, Paul and Barnabas are going to have a huge argument about how big of a deal this is. Like, was it disqualifying to quit in the middle of the journey? And one of them thought it was, and one of them thought it wasn't. And so it becomes a very big deal. But at this point, Luke just mentions it as something that happened, so we include it on our map. There he went. I don't know if he actually followed that exact way, but he went back home to where he's from, Jerusalem. So now, instead of three of them, they're down to two. Okay, Paul and Barnabas continue on, and they go from Perga to Antioch. And that's how Luke says it. Luke just says they went from Perga to Antioch. But as I told you earlier when we talked about the documentary, like, he cuts out the boring parts, but this was, a, this was a hard journey. We just look at it and go, oh, they went from Perga to Antioch, kind of like I'm going to get in my car and drive home. No, not kind of like that. This was probably a 10-day journey. From one of the books I read, they probably walked for 10 days, and Antioch is way higher than Perga, so it's like walking up a mountain, 3,600 feet elevation over the course of the 10 days. So they're walking on an incline for 10 days, but Luke doesn't mention any of that. He just says they went there, okay? But this like, took a while to get there, and then they show up, and so now they're in a town called Antioch. Now, does that name sound familiar to you? Okay, yes. And the reason Antioch should sound familiar to you is because Paul and Barnabas began this journey on Antioch. That's where they're from. That's, the, that's where they've been living, right? So they started with Antioch. So now they're in Antioch. Does that mean they've gone all the way back home? No, okay? In fact, you kind of could have figured it out because there's a map behind me that shows you they started in a town called Antioch. But they are not back home. They are now in a town called Antioch. You might go, wait, so there were two towns named Antioch? Yes, there were. Antioch and Antioch and Pisidia. And I was thinking about it this week, and I think Antioch and Pisidia, at least in our country, the equivalent would be, it's like Manhattan, Kansas. Any of you ever heard of Manhattan, Kansas? Okay, yeah, it's a real city. Um, I have a friend that went to school there. And um, 
I've never been there, and I don't want to ever go. <laughs> but I'm guessing that this is true, that people that live in Manhattan, Kansas, when they talk to people outside of Kansas, they probably do not say, I live in Manhattan, right? And the reason they don't say that is because why? Because everyone's going to assume that means like the Manhattan, like the one in New York with millions of people. I bet you they mostly say, I live in Manhattan, Kansas, right? And that's what's going on here. This is Antioch. It is not the Antioch they started in. This is hundreds of thousands of people Antioch. This is smaller Antioch. In fact, it's not called Antioch. It's called Antioch in Pisidia, right? Manhattan, Kansas, okay? Just a, so a small city just happens to have the same name as where they started. So they get to Antioch and Pisidia, and they go to the synagogue, which is their usual custom, and the people in the synagogue say to them, hey, Paul, would you like to be the guest preacher this morning? Did you catch that? They said, if you have any word of encouragement, why don't you get up and share it with us now? How in the world did Paul, if he doesn't know these people, and he's just going to these towns that he hasn't been in, how in the world does he get guest speaker status? How does he get to show up and give a word of encouragement when he first shows up? And I don't know for sure the answer to that, but, but I think you can guess. Remember what we know about him from his, his life earlier on? What was he before he was a Christian? Yeah, he was a Pharisee. He was a trained teacher of the law, trained up under Gamaliel. He probably taught in synagogues many, many times. He probably taught in synagogues before he was ever a Christian. And so he gets to be the guy that gets up and like a visiting rabbi and he shares. But in this case, as he gets up and shares, he decides to take the opportunity to share the gospel with these people. So he gets up and he starts off with um, the story of Israel. Like, like he summarizes a huge chunk of the Old Testament in just a few sentences. And in fact, I'm thinking he probably took more sentences than we have here. My opinion is that what I just read to you today, like this whole sermon that he gave, I'm thinking it's probably a summary of what he said and not a word-for-word -word transcript of what he said. You want to know why? Well, did you notice when I read it how long it took for me to read his sermon? It was like three or four minutes. Kind of hard to imagine he got up and said, let me give you the word of the day. And he talked for three or four minutes and sat down. I mean, maybe. Maybe he was that brief. I don't think so. I think that this is a, like the gist of what he said, and he probably said it with a bunch more words. But what we have here is he stands up and he starts off by describing, in fact, he says, um, the God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, exalted the people during the stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. He starts off with Exodus. He starts off with saying, hey, we are the people who were rescued by God. God came and rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he describes from there in just a few sentences, we were in Egypt, then wandering in the desert for 40 years, then finally in the promised land, then the nations all conquered and we had our land, and then there was a period of time of judges, and then there was the, the reign of King Saul, and then there was the reign of King David. And I mean, that's like a lot of years that he summarizes in just that paragraph. I mean, there's one section where he says all of this took place in about 450 years, but then there's stuff that happens before and after that. So we've got hundreds of years here. We've got a big chunk of the Old Testament, like from Exodus to 2 Samuel all in a few sentences, and that's his introduction, okay? The Old Testament happened. And then when he gets to the part about King David, he says, from David came Jesus. And then as he starts talking about Jesus, he switches for just a second and starts talking about John the Baptist. He talks about John the Baptist as the one who came before Jesus and kind of prepared the way for Jesus, pointed to Jesus as one who was coming after him. And I don't know if this is missing some sentences because this is a summary from Luke or if this is how he said it. But if this is how he said it, um, it sounds like John the Baptist must have been pretty famous. That even though John the Baptist did stuff over here, 
they'd heard about it over here. Because if you read the story, it just looks like he brings it up like they know who he is. He doesn't even call him John the Baptist. He just calls him John, right? There was John, and they're all like, yeah, John. Like, so I'm guessing either he must have explained who John is, or they knew, because it was a very significant thing that John had done. And so John says, I'm not the Holy One, but he's coming. And when he comes, I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not worthy to untie that guy's shoes, but he's coming. And then as Paul goes on, he says, and he came. The Holy One came. The Savior came. It was Jesus Christ. And at this point, Paul then tells the story of Jesus. He leaves out most of Jesus' life as it's chronicled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He just jumps straight to the end and he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what he focuses on. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. And so he tells that part of the story. They took him down from the tree. They put him in a tomb and God raised him from the dead. And then after he tells them what happened, Jesus died and rose again. Um, he then quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from the Old Testament uh, four times. And you got to remember, <laughs> who's he talking to? Yes, he's talking to Jewish people in a what? In a synagogue. So this gospel presentation that he does here, it, it, in my opinion, and I think probably in probably everybody's opinion, this is a very Jewish way to present the gospel. Right? He starts off by summarizing Exodus through um, 2 Samuel. Then he talks about Jesus as the Messiah. And then he starts quoting these Old Testament texts that he's saying, this, these were the hints. These were the times where the Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. Now that we know these things about Jesus, we look back at the Old Testament and go, oh, it matches with that and it matches with that and it matches with that. And so he brings that up to them. So why does he bring it up to them? Because they're Jewish people in a synagogue. They are very interested in these passages. So he brings up, um, I think it's two Psalms, one quote from Isaiah, and one quote from Habakkuk. And the quote from Habakkuk is just a warning to listen. But the other three quotes are all designed to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Old Testament scriptures that they probably already knew and had studied. So he brings up these Old Testament scriptures that talk about God having a son as his king over Israel. He brings up these passages that talk about how there were promises made um, related to David that were still to come true, because there were promises that were made to David that didn't, didn't come true in David's lifetime. And that's obvious even in the Old Testament. You don't need a New Testament to know that, because the place that he quotes is Isaiah. Isaiah is written, I think, hundreds of years after the time period of David. And Isaiah says, there's David promises still to be fulfilled. So he's pointing out to them, like, there's this promise that was made to David, this one who's the son that's going to come. And he's saying, and this, it still, hasn't, it still hadn't happened yet by the time Isaiah happens. And then he quotes this other verse that says, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Jesus, um, he talks about how Jesus fulfills the blessings that David spoke of regarding the Holy One not seeing decay. Now, if you go back and read that psalm, it, it almost looks like David's talking about himself there, right? That, that he would not see decay. And yet what Paul points out here is David's body did decay. I mean, he specifically says in the sermon, he says, just so you know, I mean, they, they all knew this. When David died, he was buried in the ground and his body deteriorated like any other body but the promises were still to come. And he says, the one God raised up did not decay. And so he's saying, Jesus is the Holy One from David that was promised. And then after he says that, he tells them that forgiveness of sins is available through believing in him and that they can be declared righteous in a way that they never could have following the laws of Moses. And this, I don't know if this was a welcome message or if it wasn't, but it seems like he's saying, you can be declared, you can be made right with God 
in a way that you could not be made right with God trying to follow every rule in the Old Testament. Now, these were people who probably were trying really hard to follow the rules in the Old Testament. But he's saying, you could try as hard as you want. You're never going to perfectly follow all those, but there's a way to give forgiveness. There's a way to get righteousness. That's not from you making sure you do every single little thing Moses had said. And that's through Jesus, the Holy One from David. There's all these promises. So he preaches this very kind of Jewish sermon quoting these Old Testament passages. And after he's done, he leaves the synagogue. And apparently there was a group of people there who were very into his message. I don't know what percentage of the people this is, but some people were like, whoa, and they went to him afterwards and they said, you can't just end this here. Like this needs to be a two-week series. This needs to, there needs to be a part two. You need to come back next Saturday. I got some friends that I want to hear this. I want you to explain more about this. Jesus is the Messiah. There needs to be a part two to this. And so Paul says, sure, I'll be happy to see you in seven days. I'll be happy to come and do part two. So he does. And when he shows up for part two, and he preaches, in this, this, he preaches the second time, do you remember from what I read? Part two was much more well attended than part one, wasn't it? Did you notice as I read it? Who came to part two? Do you remember? Almost the whole town. Almost the whole town. So I'm thinking this means Jewish people and Gentiles. I don't think you'd say almost the whole town if you meant just Jewish people. I'm thinking probably like Jewish people and Gentile people probably showed up, but tons of people showed up for part two. I'm thinking enough people that this, they're not in the synagogue anymore. You can't fit them all in there. Probably had to go out and talk to all this giant crowd of people that showed up. And when the giant crowd of people showed up and he got up and started telling them what he was teaching about Jesus, it says that the Jewish people got jealous when they saw the crowds. They looked at all these people. Almost the whole town shows up. And they look and they were, and I don't know what they were about exactly. It just says they were jealous when they saw the crowds. I don't know if it's that the leaders of the Jewish people were simply jealous at Paul's success. Like maybe it's the size of the crowds that caused them to be jealous, that they're sitting there going, man, we have been trying to like faithfully teach the Old Testament for years. And like a few people show up each time. And then this guy waltzes into town. And by week two of his series, like we're a mega church, right? And we've all been sitting there trying really hard to like teach this well and just a few people. And suddenly there's crowds of people interested in what he has to say. Maybe that's what they were jealous of. Or maybe the jealousy had something to do more with the ethnicity of the crowd. If it was a whole bunch of Gentile people that also showed up, it could be that there are Jewish people there that are going like, wait a minute, we have been trying to follow the rules our whole life. And now this guy gets up and says to all of these people who have not been trying to follow the rules, all these people who have not been worshiping the true God, that they can just get in by believing in Jesus. Apparently they can get into the kingdom and be made right with God the same way that we could be made right with God, even though we've been trying really hard and they've been doing whatever they want. And so maybe they looked at that and they, maybe that's what they didn't like about it. Why are you just treating the Gentiles like they can come on in as they've been? Don't you know what they've done? I don't know what they were jealous of, but it says they saw the crowds and they began to oppose Paul and what he was saying by insulting him. And so as they kind of attack him, Paul and Barnabas say, okay, well then we're done with you. Okay, the series is over, just a two-parter. And they said, we're now going to go to the Gentiles. It was, we, we needed to come to you first. I owed it to you, brothers, my fellow Jews. I owed it to you to, to give you the message first. But if you don't want it, it's Gentile time for me now. And so he goes to the Gentiles to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Gentiles loved it. It says they heard it and they rejoiced and they glorified the message of the Lord. 
and all who had been pointed to eternal life believed. And so I think that's a, the way of, I think it's, he's saying, like the Gentiles became Christians. I mean, maybe not all of them, but a bunch of them, right? Every single one of them that was going to become a Christian became a Christian. Every single one that God had called, every single one that was supposed to be saved, every person that was going to get saved that day did. And they came to know Jesus and they got eternal life and they were saved. And while that's going on, and I don't know how long that took, maybe that was several weeks of him talking to the Gentiles. Maybe he did a whole bunch of week series with them, I don't know. But while that's going on, the Jewish people who are jealous decide to stir up trouble for Paul and get him kicked out of town. And it says they've basically found that, like, the most influential people in the city, and I'm assuming they used their relational networks because Paul and Barnabas are newbie, like newbies to the city, but they've been there for a long time, right? They've been hanging out in Antioch, Pisidia for however long they've lived there. And so they start contacting their friends and people that they know and movers and shakers, and they set it up so that they start persecuting Paul and Barnabas to the point that they kick them out of town. And Paul and Barnabas get kicked out of town, and they go, that's fine. And when they leave town, they shake the dust off their feet. Did you catch that? That's, their, that's an older cultural way, but basically that was saying, like, we're not even going to take your dirt with us to the next city. Right? Like, we, we, you are so wrong, and we so do not want to be associated with the way that you have handled this that we're not going to take your city's dirt to ruin the next city. All right? And so they moved on and went to the next city, Iconium, which, if the Lord wills, will be the one we talk about next week. So that's our story for today. And I want to go ahead and end this sermon with a takeaway for you. What does this have to do with our life? How can this be applied to our life? What can we learn from this passage? I think there are a lot of things we can learn from this passage, but the takeaway I want to give you is this one. It's a, um, just a short paragraph that I wrote that I think we can get from this passage. Right? Takeaway, please. The gospel is good news for sinners about Jesus, where one can be forgiven of sins and declared righteous apart from the law and the Old Testament, there is only one gospel, but it can be presented in multiple ways. So I just wanted to explain this to you. There's a lot of things you can get from this passage, but one thing that we can see, or one multiple thing we can see, is first of all, the gospel is good news for sinners. Is that true? It is. The gospel is good news for sinners. And I'm using the word sinners here kind of a little bit as a synonym for the word Gentiles. In fact, that's why I put verse 48 here. If you look at verse 48 in your Bible, and it's going to come up on the screen, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Gentiles got eternal life. The gospel is good news for sinners. And I say sinners, the reason I've kind of associated the word Gentiles with sinners is the Bible does that a lot. A lot of times the Bible uses the word Gentiles to refer to all of the other nations outside of Israel that didn't know the true God at the time, right? So a lot of times the word Gentiles, sometimes it's translated like the pagans, right? The people that don't know God. And so when the people who don't know God heard it, they rejoiced. Why? Because the gospel is good news for sinners. Now the gospel is good news for all sinners, Jewish people and Gentile people. But the Gentile people maybe were more, maybe more aware of their sin. I don't know what the right word to use is, but I could imagine the Jewish people might be like, I don't know, do I, I already had like a, a right relationship with God and things were fine and I, I surely don't have as many sins as these people from these other nations do, right? They don't even worship the true God. But not only do they not worship the true God, they worship a false God. Not only do they worship a false God, they worship multiple gods. Ooh, like that's like so far from the truth. And they're not trying to do any of the right things that we're trying to do. And so whether someone is Jewish or Gentile, when they come to the, rec when they come to the, like the recognition that they're a sinner, we then realize, once you realize you're a sinner, you realize, oh, the fact that God would grant you eternal life, the fact that he would grant you as someone who is 
righteous in his sight, even though you're not actually righteous, that, that is good news. And there may be some of you in this room that like, you resonate with that. I think those of you who, in this room who have been Christians like a shorter period of time, it might be easier for you to relate to this than those of us who have been Christians for a long time. Those of us who have been Christians for a long time, we just kind of, you know, like, oh, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Woo, forgiveness, you know, that's cool. We get eternal life, you know. What's the big deal about eternal life? Like, I've known about that since I was five, right? I've always, like, that's just eternal life. That's what you get. But those of you who've just become Christians fairly recently, you go, I can have eternal life. I can live with God forever where he accepts me, even though... I look at my life and I go, wow, most of the things I've done were wrong. I mean, not every, it's not like everything I've done my whole life is that bad, but, but, but when I look at the stuff that God cares about, it's, I feel like I screwed up almost everything God cares about and he would declare me righteous and appoint me to eternal life. That is good news. And some of us need to remember what good news that is. So going back to the takeaway... The gospel is good news for sinners about Jesus. That's important. I'm not even going to go to verse 23. I'm going to just hope you remember that when Paul was preaching in that synagogue, he talked about Jesus a lot. Did you notice? Like most of the sermon was about Jesus. After he summarized the Old Testament for a little bit, he jumped in Jesus and it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Okay, why? Because the gospel is about Jesus. It's the good news of Jesus. And we need to know that when we share the gospel and when we believe in the gospel, we are, we are believing a message that's about Jesus. Sometimes you, we can kind of get stuck with this thing that we call the gospel that doesn't have Jesus in it. It's just sort of this weird, like, I don't know, it's just like a real generic, the God, it's the gospel, I guess, but it's real generic. It's just like there's a God and he loves you, and, but you've messed up and you're sinful and so you need to like repent and believe in something and, and get your act together and then God will forgive you, right? And then that, like, Sure, that's fine, but there's, like, there's something in the middle there that's really important. What Jesus did, we can't leave Jesus out of the gospel. Like our, our religion is called Christianity and not godlianity like for a reason. Like What Jesus did is the significant thing. That's the way that we are saved. To leave Jesus out of the gospel, it doesn't even make sense. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is, it answers sort of the how and the why as far as that we would be forgiven. Like, how can we be forgiven of our sins? If there really is a holy God who's just and treats people the way that they deserve and he's fair, then how can he look at people who have sinned and just go, I'll pretend that didn't happen, right? That's not what good judges do. So how in the world can a good God do that? That's what you need the Jesus part of the story for. He punished Jesus for you. Jesus was the sacrifice in your place. Gospel doesn't make sense without Jesus. Or the fact that he rose again from the grave. Him rising again from the grave kind of answers the hows and the whys related to eternal life. What is eternal life? And is, do we, can we really like, be accepted by God and, and live with him forever? Yes, because Jesus conquered death. He undid death and he will undo death for his people and he's proven that he can do it. Honestly, even um, answering the question like which God are you supposed to turn to is answered by that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. When I say which God, I'm not saying that there are multiple gods. There's only one. But I'm just saying in the world we live in, there are multiple worldviews. There are multiple religions. There are multiple conceptions of God. There are all sorts of people that say, well, this is the God I believe in, and this is the God we worship, and this is what I think about God. And so if we were to just say something generic, like you need to turn to God. Okay, which God? 
There's a lot of options. Which God am I supposed to turn to? The one that sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rose again? That God, he's the only one there is. And so the gospel is good news for sinners, and it is about Jesus. And it is where one can be forgiven of sins and declared righteous apart from the law in the Old Testament. We've talked about that throughout this series. We've talked about it even already in the sermon. That one of the benefits of the gospel, one of the results of the gospel is forgiveness of sins and, and being declared righteous apart from the law in the Old Testament, apart from us following. Okay, God says, these are the ceremonies that you must do. And these are the, the even, even the moral laws. There's no way that you can obey every single moral law in the Old Testament. But you can be declared righteous and forgiven of your sins because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So let me just read to you verses 38 and 39 so you get that part of the sermon. Um, sermon, I mean like when Paul was preaching his sermon. This is what he said. He said, therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. And then the last thing I want to tell you is the, the last sentence in the takeaway. The gospel is good news for sinners about Jesus, where one can be forgiven of sins and declared righteous apart from the law in the Old Testament. And then here's the last sentence. There is only one gospel, but it can be presented in multiple ways. And I think this is helpful. I think this is something we can learn from this passage. However, this is something that I think we would not get from this passage if all we did was just learn this passage all by itself. Okay? There was nothing in there that sounded like multiple ways. But if you compare the passage that we learned today to other times that Paul preached, you can see that the gospel can be presented in multiple ways. Now, there's only one gospel. Paul said there's only one gospel in Galatians, and yet when he talked about the gospel to people, he didn't use the same words every time. The way he speaks in this particular context, Acts chapter 13, is a very Jewish way of talking in a synagogue. And by the time you get to Acts chapter 17, you see he presented the gospel in a completely different way. So in this case, the reason he does a Jewish way is he's there in a synagogue talking to Jewish people, right? And I assume that the, the sermon we learned today, like the passage we learned today, I bet, as I said earlier, this passage is representative of the kinds of things he said whenever he went to a synagogue. But here's the thing. He didn't always preach in synagogues. Sometimes he went other places and preached, and when he went other places and had different audiences, he talked different. And so I want you to see them. So let's go ahead and look at this passage, and then one other one. Look, look, go, let's go to our passage. This will be the last thing we look at. Acts chapter 13, this is how he begins his sermon. Do you remember this? Paul stood up, motioned with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel. Why did he start with the words men of Israel? Yeah, because he's talking to Jewish people. And then he says, and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt, and led them out of it with a mighty arm. That's how he began his sermon, with these particular people. He says, let's start with Exodus. We believe in the God who rescued the people from Pharaoh. That's how he starts. And then he continues on. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And then after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an inheritance. So he's saying this to Jewish people. They know this, don't they? Yeah, they know this. So what is he starting off with? He starts off by saying a bunch of things they already agree with. Like as he gets up there and he says, God rescued the people from Egypt and he put up with them in the wilderness and he gave us the promised land. The people that are there as he's preaching this are probably hearing it and going, amen, 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 right, right, I agree, I agree. Yep, he rescued us out of Egypt. That was a good one. Oh, yep, gave us the promised land. Agree with that too. Amen, and I agree with what you're saying. It seems to me that what Paul does with this particular sermon is he starts off with common ground that he has with these people. 
He starts off with, hey, I'm Jewish, you're Jewish, and we all agree God rescued our ancestors from Egypt, don't we? Yeah, we all know that's true. He starts with the common ground he has with his audience and then goes to the gospel. Now look what he does in Acts chapter 17. Totally different story. Here he is in Greece. He's in the town of Athens. And here's the sermon there. I'm just going to read you a few sentences from it. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. Er, let's stop there. That's not a synagogue. So we've got to start realizing we're in a completely different area, right? We're not even in the same place. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus. What in the world's an Areopagus? Not a synagogue, I'll tell you that. This is in Greece, and this is the place where you would go to share the latest ideas. The, the Greek people, the Athenians, would come to the Areopagus, and this is where the latest ideas would be presented. So what Paul is doing in this case is more like a TED Talk than a, a, a synagogue sermon. So he stood in the middle of the Areopagus to give his TED Talk, and he starts with, men of Athens. That's weird. Why didn't he say men of Israel? Because he's not in, yeah, he's not talking to Jewish people anymore. He's talking to the men of Athens. So he's talk, he's, he knows his audience. He's talking to them. Now, what does he say after he says their name? I, he probably does what he always does, right? He said, men of Athens, God rescued us from Egypt, right? Is that how he starts his sermon? No. They probably don't even know God rescued them from Egypt. They never, probably never even heard that story. So what's he say? He says, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now that's an interesting way to start the sermon. He says, hey, you Athenians, I've been walking around your town looking at your temples and all your idols that you worship, and I even saw one, one of your shrines, one of your things that had the inscription, to an unknown God. You all believe that there's a God out there you don't know. And I also believe there's a God out there that you don't know, right? So what does he do with the Greek people? He starts with common ground, doesn't he? He said, let me tell you something we all agree on. You think there's possibly a God out there you've never heard of. And I think there's a God out there you've never heard of. So let me tell you about the God you've never heard of. So then here's the next sentence of that sermon. I, I, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrine made by hands. So he starts talking about their specific issue, shrines made by hands, that's what the Greek people were doing. And look what he starts with, it's the God who made the world and everything in it. As he talks to the Athenians, he, talks, he starts with creation. God created the whole world. When he spoke of the synagogue, he didn't start with creation. He didn't say God made the world. They knew that. He just jumped straight to Exodus. Woo, that's the good thing. That's what Jewish people want to hear. God rescued us from Exodus. But here he goes, no, there's a God who made everything. And if he made everything, he doesn't live in the stuff you make. You see what he's doing here? So I'm not going to read every single sentence of this sermon. We're going to eventually get to Acts 17 in the series of the Lord wills, and so I'm excited to get there. But for now, I think I've read enough of these sermons to get the point across to you. So back to our takeaway. Here we end. The gospel is good news for sinners about Jesus, where one can be forgiven of sins and declared righteous apart from the law in the Old Testament. There is only one gospel, but it can be presented in multiple ways. So I say it can be presented in multiple ways because for your life, this is important. If someone were to ask you, what do you believe? You know, I heard you were a Christian. I heard you saying the other day that like the gospel is the important thing. Like what is, what is the gospel? If someone were to ask you that, the correct response to that question is not quoting Acts chapter 13 verses 16 through 41 verbatim, right? 
If they say, what is the gospel? Most of the time, your response should not be, men of Israel. <laughs> right? Now we go, but that's the gospel. That's the gospel that he shared in Antioch and Pisidia. Yes, it is for that particular occasion. But when you have someone that comes to you and says, what is it that you believe? What you need to do is not just memorize Acts chapter 16 word for word. This is, what, this is what Paul said when he preached. No, our task is to understand the Bible and then tell them about salvation available through Jesus Christ in words that make sense to them. Isn't that great? Isn't that helpful? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending people ahead of us, like Luke, who wrote down things and left out things, but who you inspired so that we would know how your truth and your people and your gospel spread in the early days. May we be people who are involved in its continued spread. I pray for anybody in this room who does not know you. I pray that they would come to know you. I pray that there would be maybe people in this room who are like the Gentiles who, in, in this story, whether they're Gentile or Jewish, that they would be like someone who would say, like, I think I've screwed up most every important thing when it comes to like ethics and morality. Like, I know that I've done the wrong thing more times than I can count. Is there really a God who would accept me? Is there really a God I can turn to and I could be declared righteous? And so I pray those people would turn to you and would be saved by you. I pray that all who are appointed to eternal life would believe. And I pray for those of us who know you, that we would be people who continue to spread your word, continue to take our words and arrange them in such a way that people would know about you and people would come to know you. I pray that you would bless that and be all in that. I pray you'd help us to be missionaries to Ocala. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.